Jack and Joe went to church one evening. Jack knew his way around. After all, he'd been brought up in the place, hadn't he? Sunday school from the age of three and all that. He knew his parents would be there too in the pews, watching him proudly. He wanted to make sure they saw him, so he walked right up to the front and he sat in the front row. He bowed his head and he shut his eyes for a few moments. He'd seen his dad do that before and he knew that it looked holy. Jack, you see, took his religion very seriously. He carried a big Bible and he knew all of the latest choruses. He liked the image of being a highly principled young man as well. Unlike so many of his peers, he never consumed alcohol or cigarettes, and he was extremely self-righteous about sex. No messing around behind the school bike sheds for him. He and his girlfriend had intellectual conversations about social justice and issues of race. And instead of going to dance clubs, they went to prayer meetings at the youth minister's house. As Jack reflected upon his life in those few moments before the service began, he glowed with an inward satisfaction. How reassuring it was to know that he was a good Christian. Nothing to confess, nothing to feel ashamed about, nothing. Good grief, it couldn't be. Out of the corner of his eye, he caught sight of a familiar figure who had just entered the church behind him. It's Joe, he thought incredulously. What on earth is he doing here? He's no right to come to church, the old hypocrite. Of course, if he had been able to read Joe's mind, he would have realized that precisely the same thoughts were going through his head too. What right, Joe thought, did he have to be in church? Hadn't been to church in years. In fact, he felt thoroughly uncomfortable in the place. Kept looking around nervously as if he expected someone in authority to appear at any moment and tell him that he in fact had no business being there. He was unsure where to sit or if there was some special ritual he was supposed to observe before committing himself to stay. Didn't Christians cross themselves before they sat down or something like that or, or was that Muslims? He really couldn't remember. And in the end, he slid cautiously into the very back row. Oh no, he wailed inwardly. That's Jack up in the front, and now he's seen me. I'll never live this down in the neighborhood. So he crumpled up, his legs tucked under the pew, his head sagging down between his knees, trying to hide. As you may have guessed, Joe was not the religious sort. In fact, he had a reputation for being a bit of a lad. If there was trouble with the police on the estate, you could bet on the fact that Joe was involved. Nicotine stained his fingers and there was the distinct smell of beer on his breath. In fact, he'd been at the pub down the road only 15 minutes earlier. Why on earth had he come to church? Was it because of the row that he'd had that morning at home when he was thrown out on his ear for stealing his mother's housekeeping money again? Or was it because of the sense of humiliation he was feeling as a result of 
Julie slapping him about the face last night and telling him in unambiguous four-letter words to get out of her life because she had only just discovered that he was sleeping with Karen also. Yes, it was both of those things, and yet neither of them. Somehow, he tried unsuccessfully to drown his sorrows in that pint, but he'd just been overcome with a sense of how dirty he was and what a mess he'd made of things. Suddenly, sitting in that back pew, guilt and shame brought tears to his eyes, a blush to his cheek, and a lump to his throat. Oh, God, he sighed quietly into clenched fists. Oh, God. I tell you, it was Joe who went home a believer that night, and not Jack. Now, many of you will recognize that as a modern retelling of the parable from Luke 18 of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I did not write it, as you probably could tell from the distinctly British flavor of it, but I wish I had. I heard it a few years ago, a number of years ago, really, and it stuck with me ever since as a reminder of just how subtle and how insidious and deceptive and deadly is the sin of legalism and how it can infect the hearts of those who consider themselves to be good Christian people sitting in good gospel churches without even realizing it. Beloved, we need to take heed to our own hearts, and we need to take heed to the heart of this church because as the parable makes plain, our justification before God hangs in the balance. Mark 2, 13 to 3, 6 contains four consecutive encounters between Jesus and the legalists of his day, the Pharisees. Last week we examined the first two, the calling of Levi and the question of Jesus' eating with the tax collectors and sinners. It's found in verses 13 to 17. And then the question of why Jesus' disciples did not fast, as did the disciples of John and the Pharisees in verses 18 to 22. Today, we will cover the last two of those four encounters. The question of the Sabbath in verses 23 to 28, and then the healing of the man with the withered hand in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 3. And my aim over these two weeks, last week in this, is to identify and define legalism in order that we may see what legalism is, see why it is so deadly, and see how we can guard against the legalistic tendency that is inherent in our own hearts and in our own church. And guard against it we must, because as we noted last week, the Pharisees were, on the surface at least, not so different from us. They were morally upright, they were biblically knowledgeable, they were doctrinally orthodox, they were committed to the covenant, they were very serious about the practice of their faith, they were holy people who hated Jesus. In other words, there was something fundamentally flawed about their faith. There was something dreadfully wrong deep inside their hearts, and we identified that fatal flaw as legalism. But what is legalism exactly? Well, as we saw last week, it is not being serious about holiness or about obedience to the Scriptures. Jesus loves 
holiness. Indeed, without holiness, none of us will see the Lord. And Jesus commands obedience. It was Jesus who said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So legalism is not synonymous with holiness or obedience or righteousness. Rather, we defined legalism as the performance of moral or religious works, and here's the problem, in the power of one's own strength, just gritting your teeth and opening your Bible, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and coming to church, in the power of one's own strength, for the purpose of establishing one's own righteousness to the end that one may merit God's blessing and favor. It is the performance of moral or religious works, doing religious things and acting like religious people do, in order to fill out a religious timesheet that you then present to God so that you can put Him in His debt and He owes you something. Or so that you can show off to other people so that they will see how holy you are and conversely how unrighteous they are. And the inevitable fruit of legalism is that it produces within the heart of the legalist a deadly pride because they feel they measure up to the standard that they've erected and it produces a loveless disdain towards they feel don't measure up. Legalism was the disease that infected the hearts of the Pharisees and it made them the enemies of Jesus. It's not something to take lightly and it's not something to pass off as, oh, you know, I'm just sort of like a Pharisee. Legalism is the antithesis of the gospel. And to the extent that legalism infects your heart, that is the extent to which you do not believe the gospel. From these four encounters which Jesus had with the Pharisees, we can glean four characteristics of Pharisees both ancient and modern, legalists both then and today. And I'm giving you to these not just to fill up your head so that you can give a good definition of legalism, but so that you can examine your own heart in order to see where the seeds of legalism reside within you and within me. Last week, we noted the first two of these characteristics. Number one, legalists do not understand the gospel. They attempt to establish their own righteousness rather than, as the gospel says, receiving the righteousness of Christ by faith. That's why the Pharisees were scandalized that Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus says to them, in effect, you don't recognize your own disease. You imagine everyone else as having the ailment and yourself as being well. You imagine everyone else as being unrighteous and you are the righteous ones. But guess what? I came here for the unrighteous and I came here for the sick and your own legalism blinds you to your need of me. Legalists do not understand their need of Christ. They don't understand the gospel. They do not recognize their own disease, and so they see no need of the physician. Characteristic number two, legalists do not understand the spiritual disciplines. They use the spiritual disciplines. Fasting, prayer, Bible reading, church attendance, the Lord's Supper. 
They use the spiritual disciplines as a means of gaining merit and erecting an artificial standard of holiness by which they judge both themselves and somebody else. That's why the Pharisees could not comprehend that the disciples of Jesus did not fast, you know, like they did. Jesus informed them that they don't understand the purpose of fasting. Why on earth would the disciples fast, which is a sign of mourning, when the bridegroom stands among them? The spiritual disciplines are designed to bring you to Jesus when Jesus is not present among us. The spiritual disciplines connect you to Christ, so why on earth would you fast when he is there eating and drinking with you? The thought of fasting when the bridegroom was present never entered into the disciples' mind. So overcome with joy were they that the Christ was with them. Why do you read your Bible? Why do you pray? Is it in order to fill out this checklist that you can turn around and present to God or show off to other people to show how righteous you are and to show God why He needs to bless you? Or do you open your Bible and pray and come to church in order to connect you to Christ? They're means of grace. And when they're not used as means of grace, they're sin. The third characteristic of legalists is that they do not understand the purpose of the law. Pharisees, both ancient and modern, view the law as a religious checklist to fulfill. It's a spiritual time clock to punch moral duties to complete, rather than as a means of leading us to Christ. I think that's the point at issue in the third encounter, which is the encounter over the issue of the Sabbath. So beginning at verse 23, we read this. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him? How he entered into the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath." By the way, you can kind of test your heart here before we even begin. Does it bother you that the law specifically states that only priests should eat the bread of the presence and yet David went in and ate it? If so, you need to listen very, very closely to Jesus' response. The issue at stake here in this encounter is the Sabbath and whether or not the disciples of Jesus are breaking it by plucking heads of grain as they walk along kind of rubbing them in their hand, letting the chaff fall off, and then eating the kernels. Every Jew knew that it was forbidden to work on the Sabbath. I mean, that was clear. Even a cursory reading of the law demonstrated that. But what is work? Which activities violate the Sabbath command and which activities do not? Well, that's where the rabbinic tradition came in, as preserved and interpreted by the Pharisees. It's called the Mishnah. It's the written oral tradition. 
the Mishnah lists no less than 39 classifications of work which violate the Sabbath command. Some of them we would expect to find, like plowing or hunting or butchering. Some we would not probably expect to find, like tying and loosening knots, for instance, on your sandals, sewing more than one stitch, or writing more than one letter. Some of them bordered on the absurd, like the rule that said you could not walk a distance greater than 1,999 paces. 1,999 paces was okay, it's about 800 meters, but 2,000, that's a violation of the fourth commandment. Well, at issue here is that the disciples are plucking heads of grain, okay, crushing them in, his, in their hands, letting the chaff fall away, and the Pharisees said, hey, why are your disciples reaping wheat on the Sabbath? This reaping, so to speak, of the grain provoked the ire of the Pharisees and it called forth their question, why are they doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus responds with this strange story about David. Now, if you want to read through it this afternoon, you can turn to 1 Samuel 21 and you'll find it. In the days of Abiathar the high priest, David is, and his men are on the run from Saul and they're starving, they're famished. And so they go into the tabernacle, which was out in the wilderness in those days, and they, they eat the consecrated bread, the show bread, which was in the holy place, which is reserved only for the priests. And in this response... Jesus is answering the Pharisees' objections in two ways. He reveals, his response reveals two fundamental misunderstandings which they had about the law. Number one, they misunderstood the law's intent. They imagined that the law was like a giant ladder that they could erect and, and lay against the portals of heaven and climb up into the kingdom rung over rung in the power of their own strength and their own self-determination. Or another metaphor, they understood the law to be an un, a rigid and unyielding list of commands which God very carefully watches over just waiting to condemn anyone whose toe barely crosses the line. Neither opinion of the law is accurate, as we will see. The point of reference to David is that on both occasions, David and his men and the disciples, righteous men are doing something that is technically forbidden. And they're doing so out of necessity in the service of God. David, the man after God's own heart, was following God's will. He was out on the run. He was evading Saul's constant attempts to murder him. And he was awaiting the day of Saul's death when he then would ascend to the throne as God's anointed king. In the course of this time on the run, hunger overtook him and his men. And so they fed themselves on God's holy bread. They broke the law as an act of necessity in the service of God. Does that trouble you? Jesus says it shouldn't. 
Jesus' point is that if God did not condemn David and his men for eating the consecrated bread, then neither does God condemn Jesus' disciples for plucking the heads of grain while they're traveling with Jesus to do what? To preach the gospel of the kingdom in the next village to which they come. It was an act of necessity in the service of God. This is why Jesus concludes the story with that memorable line that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. See, the Pharisees had missed the intention of the law. The law is not a rigid list of rules given by a rigid God with no overarching purpose but to weed out the lawbreakers and reward the law keepers. Yes, it is unlawful to work on the Sabbath. But the kind of work that the law envisioned was one's ordinary labors and vocation. If you're a teacher, don't teach on the Sabbath. If you're a farmer, don't plow on the Sabbath. If you're a butcher, don't prepare meat on the Sabbath. The intention of the Sabbath was not to erect this rigid list of rules, but to provide men and women the opportunity to give their bodies the physical rests that they needed and their souls the spiritual refreshment that they required. Plucking heads of grain, therefore, on the way to preach the gospel with Jesus is not work and it is no violation of the Sabbath day. Not if one understands the law right. But secondly, Jesus points out that they had missed the entire goal of the law. The end of the law. The telos of the law. The goal of the law is to lead us to Christ, so says the Apostle Paul. And I think that's the point of Jesus' very startling statement that comes in verse 28. So... The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath command was designed, it was given in order to bring you to me. And these fellas, they're with me. They're okay. They've seen the end of the law. The Sabbath commandment was given that men might rest from their ordinary labors and seek God's face. The end of the law, therefore, the goal of the law, is God. And now God was among them in the person of His Son. In other words, the disciples were in fact fulfilling the purpose of the Sabbath merely by being in the presence of the Son of God. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were in violation of the Sabbath because the Son of God was among them and they hated Him, even while they loved their law. The Sabbath command, indeed the whole of the law, was given to lead us to Christ, which who is the end of the law. Romans 10.4 says this, For Christ is the end of the law, the telos, the goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Or Paul says in Galatians 3.24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we may be justified by faith. The law was a custodian to take us to Christ who then justifies us by His grace. 
The Pharisees, on the other hand, turned the law, which was intended to be a divine blessing to lead us to Christ, into an intolerable burden that actually obscured Christ. In legalism, the law rules, replace the person of God as that which is most important. And it's very subtle. It's very subtle because we have a faith that is not absent of commandments. But the commandments are not the end. God is the end. The law in Pharisaic Judaism and in legalism today is no longer about leading people to the knowledge of God and reconciliation with Him through His mercy and faith in His Messiah. It's about a list of rules by which they determine whether or not they and other people are righteous. The law has become an end in itself. That's why when the Messiah came, they did not recognize him and they did not receive him, but they rejected him as a lawbreaker because Jesus says, I'm not so very concerned about the Sabbath day because I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And they said, sinner. Because they missed the intent of the Sabbath, they missed the end of the Sabbath. Because they did not recognize the purpose of the Sabbath, they rejected the Lord of the Sabbath. Now this brand of legalism is an ever-present danger in the church, particularly among those like us who are legitimately serious about holiness and about conforming our lives to the Word of God, which is good. The way it happens is this, ever so subtly, the intent of a scriptural command becomes obscured by a list of rules and regulations that are built up around it aimed at helping us keep the command. In time, the intention of the command is lost and those rules become what is important. The, the Pharisees spoke about building a hedge around the law. The problem is, if you build a hedge and it grows tall enough and thick enough, you can't see what it's supposedly guarding. The view of the goal of the law, who is Christ, who is God himself, becomes obscured. The result is twofold. When the intention of the commandment is lost and the rules become the main point. On the one hand, some abide by the rules very scrupulously, and they thereby imagine that they are holy. And secondly, others do not, and they are therefore condemned by the first as sinners. Let me give you three concrete examples of how I see this working itself out in churches like ours. Example number one, the Bible instructs Christian women to dress modestly, right? 1 Timothy 2.9, if you're looking for a Bible verse. But what is modesty? What does it mean to dress modestly? Well, in an effort to define what modesty is for oneself and for others in the church, some well-intentioned person begins to articulate extra-biblical rules which become traditional now, this is all well and good until that tradition becomes enshrined as Scripture and people no longer know the difference. 
And suddenly, those who don't abide by the tradition are then ostracized and are regarded as unholy, unrighteous, and sinful. Before long, the purpose of the scriptural injunction to modesty, which is love for your neighbor. By the way, that's why you ought to dress modestly, because you love the men of this church. And you don't want to cause them to stumble. The point of the law, become love for neighbor, becomes obscured by the rules of modesty. Those who abide by these rules do not do so, not out of love for neighbor, but in order to consider themselves and be seen by others as the holy ones, as opposed, for instance, to those unholy tramps who don't abide by these rules of modesty. That's how it works. And ever so subtly, those who abide by the rules find that their acceptance before God is now grounded in their own righteousness as they have now defined righteousness rather than in the righteousness of Christ given freely by grace. Parentheses. This is for free. Let's talk about modesty for a second. There is a notion out there in evangelicalism that modesty is somehow unimportant. And that to say that you ought to dress modestly out of love for the men of this church is body shaming. That's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. It's on two reasons. Number one, it's not body shaming, it's love. And number two, when someone decides to reject modesty and to dress immodestly, they in fact are heaping shame upon those women who are not as fond of their bodies. So in fact, they're body shaming other women. In parentheses. Here's the point. Ladies, you ought to dress modestly. Why? 1 Timothy 2.9 says so. Why? Because you love your brothers who are trying to do 1 Timothy 5.2 and to treat you like sisters. But I'm not going to define a long list of rules as to what is modest and what is not. Because I don't want those rules to become the standard by which you evaluate yourself and other people. That's legalism. Dressing modestly is love. Adding rules that become tradition, that become equated with scripture, is legalism. Example number two. The Bible instructs Christian singles, whether young or not so young, To conduct themselves in purity. Right? Can we agree on that? Flee immorality. But what is pure? Do you have to kiss dating goodbye in order to be pure? Or as teenagers and young adults so often phrase the question, how far is too far? Listen, I have definite convictions on that matter which I am glad to give in private in the form of pastoral counsel and wisdom, but I am hesitant to lay down hard and fast rules in public that go beyond the grounds of Scripture. 
I am content because I believe that the Bible is sufficient to tell you, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits, he commits is outside of his body. But when he commits immorality, he sins against his body, and he sins against the Holy Spirit who, is, who indwells them. Guess what? That's sufficient. The moment I begin to add to those commands with extra biblical rules that say, you can't date, you've got a court, you can't do this, you have to do it this way. Rules which are designed, and by the way, are absolutely fine for families. Families can do what the pastor can't do. You can set up your family rules. Perfect. You cannot impose those on other people in the church. The moment you begin to add to those commands extra biblical rules designed to erect a hedge around biblical purity, those rules, whether you intend them to or not, become a new law and the standard by which Christian singles are going to judge themselves and others as either holy or unholy. Again, the purpose of the command, love for neighbor, begins to be obscured by the rules and regulations, and ever so subtly, just like Jack in the parable at the beginning, their justification before God shifts from the righteousness of Christ alone to the adherence to the rules of purity. Example number three. The Bible instructs all Christians to live simply and not in material excess and luxury. 1 Timothy chapter 6. But what is simple? And what is luxury? Can a Christian own a vacation home? What about a BMW? If a Christian can't own a BMW, how new is too new before it's luxury? I mean, everyone knows that a Christian can own a 2002 BMW, so long as they didn't buy it new at the time, but definitely not at, say, 2015 with less than 30,000 miles, right? That would be luxury. How big can a Christian's flat-screen TV be? It's 55 inches the max. Do we have to go down to 48 inches in order to keep us safely in the realm of holiness? 70 inches is like putting a window to hell in your living room. As soon as we go beyond Scripture and we begin to add definitions to the biblical instruction, we've obscured the purpose of the command, love of neighbor, guarding your heart against greed, launching an assault upon idolatry, and we've erected an artificial standard by which we may judge ourselves and one another as either holy or unholy. Self-righteousness becomes enshrined and the righteousness of Christ is demeaned and ultimately destroyed. And it's subtle. So we need to take heed. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone as our only rule of faith and practice. Sola Scriptura, the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture, that's not simply some mantra that every October we periodically spout off in order to demonstrate our reformed bona fides. It's real. It is there to keep us from adding to Scripture obscuring the purpose of the commandment and losing our grip on the gospel of free grace through faith alone in the imputed righteousness of Christ alone. Finally, 
Characteristic number four, legalists do not love people, which is supremely evident in this fourth and final encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees, which is recorded in this passage in Mark's gospel. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees then went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Now, at issue again is the purpose of the Sabbath day. The Pharisees and their rabbinic tradition held that healing was one of those 39 things that could not take place on the Sabbath or else it violated the fourth commandment. That is, unless one's life was in danger. And evidently, having a withered hand didn't count. According to the Mishnah, one may straighten... I'm sorry, one may not straighten a deformed body or set a broken limb on the Sabbath. Mishnah Shabbat 22.6. Well, Jesus takes that tradition and swats it aside. He summons the man with the withered hand into the midst of the congregation, and with him he brings the underlying issue out into the forefront and into the light, and he simply asks, is an act of mercy a violation of the fourth commandment? Listen to James Edwards on this. He says, For Jesus, human need poses a moral imperative. When good needs to be done, there can be no neutrality, and failure to do good is to contribute to evil. It is thus not simply permissible to heal on the Sabbath. It is right to heal on the Sabbath, whether or not it is quote-unquote lawful. That's the way Jesus looked at need and suffering, and the demands of mercy. Jesus could not ignore the need of the man in front of him, not when he had the power to meet it, and neither should we. Mercy placed a higher demand upon him than any list of rules or regulations, scriptural or traditional. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, says the Lord in Hosea 6.6, which Jesus quoted in Matthew 12.7. And that is absolutely incomprehensible to legalists because the law is more important than anything, even people. Edwards again says this kind of religion can be separated from human need. It doesn't have to get its hands dirty with needy people. For the conniving observers, proper religion is not about the intent of the heart, but about things that can be empirically tested and measured, about questions of theological correctness and matters of purity and fulfilling legal requirements. The observers are willing to tolerate the lamentable condition of another human being in his in this instance, and use it as leverage against Jesus. But Jesus does not use people, whether powerful or powerless, for ulterior purposes. The test, listen, the test of all theology and morality is either passed or failed by one's response to the weakest and most defenseless members of society. Ouch. The Pharisees were willing to use the suffering man to get at Jesus because they hate Christ and they don't love people. 
But Jesus exposes their hypocrisy in the second part of his question, whether it's lawful to save a life or to kill it. Why does he say that? He says that because of verse 6. Jesus is acting in mercy in order to save or restore this man's life. By healing his withered hand, Jesus is giving him his life back. But what are the Pharisees doing on this particular day? They're plotting to kill a man. So who's really breaking the Sabbath? Pharisees had no answer. In verse 5, you catch a glimpse of Jesus' feelings toward legalism and legalists. It says he was angered and grieved at their hardness of heart. Listen, if you want to make Jesus mad, pretend to be holy and ignore the suffering of people. Jesus cannot stand such hypocrisy, and so he commands the man to stretch forth his hand, and the man did, and instantly he was healed. And that proved too much for the Pharisees, and they went out and they plotted with the Herodians to destroy him. This is the way it is with legalists. They elevate their rules and their regulations above the needs of people because they don't comprehend either mercy or love. And it is easy, it's subtle to fall into this danger, First Baptist Nixa. In all of our expositions, in all of our preaching, in our teaching, in our book reading, in our catechisms, in our talks about theology, in all of our doctrinal precision, it is easy to lose sight of hurting people. And that's why what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 stings me. He says, if I speak in the tongue of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have and deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. So I rewrote those verses. And I applied them to me. And here's how it goes. If I preach with silver-tongued eloquence and exposit the scriptures with exquisite precision, but have not love, I am but a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I grasp the depths of theology and master the Greek language and can answer any theological question that comes my way, but have not love, I am nothing. If I go on two mission trips a year and preach the gospel for days on end in distant lands but have not love, I gain nothing. You probably could and probably should write something similar about yourself. I think it's a helpful exercise. The point is that all of my knowledge and theology and preaching and study, if that gets in the way of meeting real needs of real people who are really hurting and really suffering, it's all for naught. Your faith is not primarily measured by how much you know, but by how much you love. Listen to me very closely. This is a church that loves doctrine. But you can be holy without knowing the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Or being able to quote Spurgeon or Luther or Calvin. Calvin, But you cannot be holy without loving hurting people. 
Over the past two weeks, we've taken a hard look at legalism, and I've sought to warn us of the danger which it particularly poses to this church, which I think it is fair, I really do, I think it is fair to say that First Baptist Nix is a strong, healthy, biblically, theologically reformed church, a doctrinally orthodox church, and all of those things are great things. You are a great church, and I love you. And that's why I tell you, you need to take heed to the danger which has beset many good churches just like this one. Remember the characteristics of legalists, both ancient and modern. They don't understand the gospel. They try to establish their own righteousness and they miss the righteousness of Christ, which is the only righteousness that can save. They don't see that they're diseased, so they don't come to the physician. Number two, they don't understand the spiritual disciplines. They use them in order to fill out a timesheet to present it to God in order to show God and put Him in, in their debt so that He has to bless them or to show off to other people and demonstrate how holy they are. Number three, they don't understand the purpose of law. The rules become all important and the purpose, the scriptural purpose of commandments, namely to know God and to love people, becomes obscured. And number four, Pharisees don't love people. They don't know or comprehend mercy or love. They only know words like duty and responsibility. They elevate their man-made rules over the needs of hurting people. So First Baptist Nixa, check your hearts. The antidote to legalism is a regular dose of the gospel, and that's why we preach it so often. Don't ever lose sight and don't ever take for granted and don't ever move past the wonderfully glorious news that God loves you for a reason that is completely outside of yourself. He loves you on the basis of a righteousness which is not your own and He accepts you on the basis of a righteousness which you did not earn, which you cannot deserve, which you could never merit, but which has been freely given to you by grace through faith on account of the blood and the righteousness of Christ. You, you grasp hold of that truth, you hang on to it with everything you are, and you love it to the depths of your being and you'll be okay against legalism. It was the repentant tax collector, not the self-righteous Baptist, who went home justified that day. So God grant that we would never deport, depart from the glorious justifying confession that says, God be merciful to me, the sinner. 